Welcome to Talks News, your only source for the crumbling castle. a bit of a different uh, broadcast program for you today. Um, I'm not going to cover, in this specific podcast, I'm not going to be covering uh, any right-wing narrative. Um, That's normally what I usually do, is I find the hottest and latest right-wing takes into the zeitgeist, right? I've covered, you know, Donald Trump. I've covered what he, he thinks of the COVID, everything he thinks, actually. I've covered uh, Daily Wire and Ben Shapiro. I, I don't think I've gotten a Michael Knowles video in here yet. I think I've gotten a couple Matt Walsh's. Um, there's, there's still plenty of right-wing that I haven't even gotten to, but I've focused in on mostly the bigger ones, right? But that's just because they're with the stories that have been coming out, those are the ones who have those takes that are going to reach the most amount of people, and that's why I've been covering those specific stories. Um, Today, though, or at least just for this broadcast, because I'm debating whether or not I'm going to record two episodes today, but right now, for this episode, what I wanted to focus in on here uh, was the new study that came out from the Armed Conflict Location and Event Data Project. Pardon the sniffle here. It's an early morning. Um, Just recently released over the weekend, I believe, yes, 31st of October or August, which, you know, not over the weekend, it was nearly a week ago, we got a study uh, bringing together, oops, bringing together data surrounding the uh, 11,000 demonstrations that have happened since the death of George Floyd. Yes, you heard that correct. Alive 11,000 demonstrations since the death of George Floyd. Um, pardon the barking or any background noise. Uh, I'm doing the best that I can. Hopefully someday I'll have the production kit that will really bring this to the mainstream. All right, all right, all right. I'm losing my shit. I'm excited, all right? Now, this might be a bit more of a boring episode because I'm not going to be really refuting any information that the right-wing narrative is saying. And the reason why I'm wanting to cover this is because the right-wing narrative, I I so far haven't seen anybody come out with videos or any hot takes or anything specifically that would refute the information or the narrative that's being built here in itself. I think, for the most part, the right-wing's play on this is probably just to avoid, uh, just avoid it. Oh, nice. That'd be great. Um, Slate's offering jobs on Twitter. Um, Let's see. And then we have trending on Twitter right now. Multiple boats sink during Trump boat parade on Lake Travis. I'm going to click on this because I'm sure there's some right-wing takes in there. But I have not heard any right-wing takes when it comes to the armed conflict. Or I should just say the ACLED. Their study. So far, there's been absolutely nothing on that. Um, But we do have information here. At least four boats sank at an event promoted as a Trump boat parade on Lake Travis in Texas on Saturday, the authorities said. At that time, too, like yesterday, Dumkirk, 
you know, a pun on Dunkirk, uh, 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 a World War II event where sailors went and rescued uh, British soldiers, I believe. If it wasn't British soldiers, it was at least Allied soldiers. I can't remember if they were British or, or, or uh, American. It's a specific event where uh, I think Allied soldiers, I think they were American, were trapped in Dunkirk and were just constantly being blitzkrieged or just torn up to shreds by the uh, German army, German forces, and uh, boats, civilian boats, came by and rescued these uh, those poor chaps. And so we were getting the comparison, Dunkirk, Dunkirk. Um, all right, I'm just going to have to close this window. Oh, my God. Ugh. Ugh. All right, if you want to get a studio quicker, do not make commentary for the left wing. You'll get much farther in life grifting for the right. Um, but as I was saying, Travis County Sheriff here tweeted, oh, um, that multiple calls involving boats in distress. <laughs> if you could watch the YouTube right now, I'm having like a zoom in problem. Every time I move my mouse, it it's done now. It's just not going to. Oh, I got I got liquid on my whenever I get liquid on this little mouse pad, it just uh, basically becomes rebellious. It's so zoomed in right now, but I'm going to read it while it dries. TCSO Travis County Sheriff's Office responded to multiple calls involving boats in distress during the Trump parade on Lake Travis. Several boats did sink. You cannot make this up, and I find it pretty funny. <laughs> um, it's just, you know, it's it's we're reaching levels of almost ridiculousness. This country, we're so absurd, and it's all over. It's just all over an orange man, you know. Um, the orange man, you know, exacerbating um, issues that we've had here in the United States for a while. So I just find it extremely, extremely, extremely fascinating here. Uh, I think I'm going to take this broadcast itself live stream. The reason why I want to do that is because I'm going to be going over this information and maybe the best idea is to have the audience, if there is one, to participate in. But I think what, at least for the most part, we're going to get into it here pretty soon in a second. Just going to update some stuff. I want to thank you for joining me in my shit show because this is just fucking amazing. Um, let's see here. Do 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 do. How was your day? All right. Um. So yeah, we're gonna be going over the the study. Um, let's see here. Let's see here. Alright, updated that info there. So we can get that going. We're going to start streaming here. Thank you again for listening and being patient with me. Um, I know I have a handful of listeners and I love you very much. I have... Uh, nothing to ask of you but to continue listening. 
I got I can't beg for money or nothing. I, I, I do this out of the, the simple toxicity that lives in my heart. Um, but there's there's just so much to go over and like this is more of a therapeutic outlet than it is anything for me. I would love to get paid for this and do it more often because I feel that the news and uh, really politics is much more important to me than any nine to five job. But, uh, you know, we just do what we can, right? We just do what we can. So, um, let's see. All right. So, as reported, some boats went down. Um, I didn't. I don't know whose side, which what, how. Um, it's just. It's kind of like a sign that no matter where these demonstrations are going to happen, we're just going to continue to see civilians attacking each other. Um, and I have a bit of a belief that, like, for the most part, what we're really seeing here is the media just really hyping situations up. They don't, they're exacerbating it just about as bad as Trump is, um, which allows this chaos to continue into the living rooms. And I think it even feeds into, uh, the Kyle Rittenhouses of the world who hear these narratives and have to go out and defend themselves, and then the Michael Reynolds of the world are going to hear those stories and go out and defend themselves. Um, I have another video that I want to get into after this broadcast. I'll put it up on the on the pod on on all your pod streamers all over the place. But uh, I want to because there's something going on with the right wing in America concerning Michael Reinel and Kyle Rittenhouse. And it seems to be uh, completely conflicting uh, beliefs. But yeah, multiple boats in distress. I don't even know if I really want to get the full scope of the ridiculousness on this. Um, I just wanted to see in here if there were any of my favorite right-wing uh, takes with their takes. There are some ridiculous pictures in here, though. Alright, so it gave me basically just the gist. I can't switch up here to see like uh, latest or the top, so this is different. Um, and then, just reported five hours ago here on Twitter, we have protesters and police clash in Portland City uh, marking 100 days of demonstrations. We have had 100 and consecutive days of demonstrations. I feel like the only time that uh, tensions really went down as far as Portland, and I thought they actually had taken a break on that day, uh, was the day that the federal agents were removed. So I must have been wrong about that. Um, it must have just continued on regardless. But for the most part, uh, yeah, 100 consecutive days just going on and on. If you could, if you're listening and you want, uh, you know, consistent stories here or consistent reporting, uh, talk woods. Ooh, God. Tuck Woodstock on Twitter is a great account to follow. Um, Hungry Bowtie is another great account to follow. And Robert Evans is another great account to follow. If you even get those three, then surely enough you'll see more posts from others in there and you can get even more on-the-ground reporting of uh, Portland because the thing that Portland's going through right now, especially if you don't live in Oregon and you live in surrounding states or around the world, is that you're going to get characterizations 
of Portland. That's inevitable. It's unavoidable. So what you're going to have to do if you want to be a well-informed individual who doesn't just uh, side with medias and political parties is actually to gather as much information as you can, hear all sides of the story as you can, and and then I guess use your biases at that point to decide which side you're on. But to just take merely the media or the information of, well, this is a riot, well, this is a protest, not nearly getting the uh, nuances and the, 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 to, to blanket it in a myopic view of this is a riot, this is a protest, these are terrorists, not really getting information about the people who are on the ground, not hearing from organizing leaders, not hearing the complexities of the situation. Um, that just kind of really puts everybody who participates in these protests in danger, um, merely because of what you believe and then that belief being perpetuated through right-wing narrative or any kind of narrative, really. Um, Because like I said, even with CNN, I feel like there's elements of, well, these protests just need to keep continuing. That just, it it terrifies the the right. I I believe that the protests need to continue because no justice, no peace. You feel me? Um, If we don't actually get uh, change, then there's no reason for the protests to end. But I feel like the, the media's place in it, whether it's MSNBC or CNN, and they're saying that the protests need to continue or that they are actually defending the people. I I appreciate them not mischaracterizing the peaceful protests, um, but for the most part, they don't cover the actual, I would say, nonviolent protests, the ones that are um, like when they were shooting fireworks at the federal agents in the municipal building. That's a very hard story to cover without sounding biased. But the thing was, is that they weren't trying, the protesters weren't trying to kill anybody. I don't believe that they've been trying to kill anybody for a while now. Um, And I'm starting to get so lost in the complexities now that we're not, if I continue on, we're not going to be able to continue with the actual content of the podcast that I wanted to get into. Because there's just, there's just, there's so much, there's so much. But as we're seeing here, I got to move on because eventually we got to get to the study. But from what we can see here, 100 straight days, Um, they've been just going on and on this video is pretty crazy of them uh let's see i'm not sure what they set on fire but it's a it's a pretty crazy fire that they had made in the middle of the street here mike baker reports you can see the portland protests are running around with their legs on fire at the beginning of this video um yeah yeah it's not safe to play with fire um let's see three patrol bombs have just been thrown oh petrol sorry at least one person is hit OSP troopers on scene disperse demonstrators with impact munitions and pepper ball munitions. Um, I also heard that Portland has banned uh, rubber bullets, but that doesn't seem to have ever ceased. They also were supposed to um, reduce the amount they used tear gas. I think it was once banned, and then it also began to a point to where, oh, okay, well, you have to at least warn them. And see, that's what's going on here. I mean, if you use tear gas, tear gas, I'm pretty sure is flammable. They just tossed a tear gas out there as a flashbang and it created more fire. But uh, apparently, you know, you can blame that on petrol bombs. But as you can see, the ignition happens after they throw theirs. So, yeah, that was a firework definitely from protesters. Um... And from what I can tell in this video itself is that the 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 the, the tensions in Portland continue to escalate, um, and it just leaves more room for more terror, uh, not terror, um, more violence. And I think just recently the state troopers had been deputized, so even that 
nothing like federal agents, state deputized National Guard, nothing is really going to stop Portland until they see significant change. And they really, really, really want to get rid of their mayor at this point. Um, Mike Baker seemed to have covered it a lot. The police started arresting people. They breached a flaming barricade. Only a section of it was on fire. Yeah, not the whole barricade was on fire. Not the whole thing. I don't want that to... That would be confusing. Only a small piece of it. Because um, the police wouldn't be able to really advance the way they did with if, if the whole barrier was on fire. But the police are advancing. Um, Portland police reported last night are making loudspeaker announcements reminding people marching near Ventura Park to remain on sidewalks and obey all laws. The march is unpermitted. Portland police encourage lawful demonstrations. Um, they haven't. They haven't for... 100 days. Um, Firebombs were thrown at officers, injuring at least one community member. Police are trying to restore peace and order for the safety of this neighborhood. Um, yep. Yep, they're throwing petrol bombs. It's not good. Um, it's not really going to help tensions. Um, I can't say whether what they should be doing or what they shouldn't be doing because I don't live there. I don't know what they are supposed to do in situations like this. But as we can see in Portland, the longest running uh, anti-police brutality demonstration has continued to go on and on. Um, this is stemmed from, uh, stemmed from George Floyd. It is very much related to the demonstration since the murder of George Floyd. This is just an escalation because the police have never relented their brutality against demonstrators. So 100 straight days of it. Um, let's see here. Let's see. Robert is uh, someone I listen to on a lot of podcasts, but he happens to also live in Portland, Oregon. And uh, yeah, he's the host of the Behind the Bastards podcast uh, and does investigative journalism for Bellingcat. So I was going in here real quick to see if he had any recent reporting from there because he's been there pretty consistently. I am not too familiar with Mike Baker. He does have a check mark, so that means he has a bit more clout than Robert does. Robert does not have a check mark. I think he's sitting around 165,000 followers and no check mark. That's fucked up. I don't know what you need to get a check mark then. Um, but, you know, even if you go to Robert Evans posting here, you can actually get a good story that he wrote uh, for Bellingcat that kind of lays out uh, the continuation of what's been going on in Portland. Uh, so let's see. Let's scroll down here. Uh, there are about six chads following the card. Uh, so John hashtag Portland protests tweeted there were about six chuds. Um, that's in that's a uh, uh, internet speak for six idiot males following the crowd by Domino's on 122nd. A pipe bomb let off. Some unconfirmed report 
it was a red Charger and white Silverado with Trump Pence sticker and Utah plates. And here's the thing about like the the whole chaos that happens during these demonstrations is it does leave room for stochastic terrorism to go completely undetected. And maybe I want to cover that study as well. But as we can see here, and I'm starting to notice here that I'm dragging on and getting off topic, but um, things continue to escalate in Portland. Portland is on a completely different situation than most uh, demonstrations in the United States are. Um, but I feel like if everybody had continued to go on, because the thing is, is that I don't think Portland police really demonstrated anything that other cities didn't do, which is uh, use of force to send protesters home and to intimidate them to stay home and arresting them so that they don't have the numbers and the night and all kinds of shit like that. Theirs has continued on only because their protesters continue to show up. The bodies, the numbers, all of that continues to go on. Without that, the protest movement dies out, and you see that in a lot of other cities and states. But Portland has this pers uh, this this different level of uh, uh, persistence, and I kind of have to applaud it because they just keep taking police brutality. They just keep taking it and taking it and taking it, and it's just ridiculous that we can't compile all this uh, video that has been shown and make the, the case that the police are overly militarized attacking civilians. It's crazy. Um, there's been a lot of ugly arrests videos coming out lately. Um, I just saw a picture of somebody's face just completely bloodied up from an arrest that the police made, but Robert Evans here seems to have covered the protest last night. Uh, so maybe they'd be worth it for other people to go into that. Um, I was just kind of getting caught up there because the things continue to go on, and I think that's important into the context before we get into the study. And what is the study? So... Take a sip of that worker's fuel. Let's check it out. The U.S. Crisis Monitor, a joint project between ACLED and the Bridging Divides Initiative, BDI, at Princeton University, collects real-time data on these trends in order to provide timely analysis and resources to support civil society efforts to track, prevent, and mitigate the risk of political violence in America. With supplemental data con uh, collection extending Coverage back to the week of Floyd's killing in May, the data set now encompasses the latest phase of the Black Lives Matter movement, growing unrest related to the health crisis, and politically motivated violence ahead of the November general election. These data reveal that the United States is in crisis. It faces a multitude of concurrent overlapping risks, from police abuse and racial injustice to pandemic-related unrest and beyond, all exacerbated by increasing polarization. This report maps these trends with a view toward the upcoming election when these intersecting risks are likely to intensify. I personally, and that was the, uh, the, the intro to the study here, I personally am not excited for November 3rd. I see that as a very dark day on the way. Um, and I can't wait till we can get past it. Hopefully with a landslide win by Joe Biden, uh, because most predictions have seen that that is going to lead to the safest outcome for American citizens. Uh, anything other than that, we are going to see dark days um, and no 
no gorillas involved no feel good ink it's it's going to be all bad all outer worlds dark capitalism necro capitalism maybe if we're lucky because we're dealing with a pandemic that is just ravaging uh low income and elderly communities so not excited about the election uh we get a map here um it says political violence demonstrations and strategic developments in the u.s uh between may 24th and the 22nd of august 2020 and the map here shows different event types where you have battles violence against civilians strategic developments riots and protests and you can see number of events now it's pretty scattered throughout the united states it's yeah for sure um, but you do have much more cluster on the east side of the United States, and then it clusters a bit more further west that you go. Um, Washington and Oregon having their own little blots. Um, Colorado looking pretty close to what Washington and Oregon be on, as well as New Mexico, surprisingly. But then you get Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, all having very few demonstrations, uh, not quite as um, politically active as the rest of the United States. Because once you get to uh, Texas and then Oklahoma and then start moving east from there, the protests, battles, um, violence against citizens, I don't see too much strategic developments going on, but it is pretty scattered. Um, riots seem to also be spread out. Um, there's a massive uh, blimp in Oregon for the riots. So, um, yeah, there's a lot going on. Uh, number of events is also highlighted with the size of their squares, or I mean the size of their circles in gray. So it's, a, it's an interesting map. <laughs> there's a bit going on in Alaska as well. Very small, though. And Hawaii, there's some there as well. It's fascinating that they included Alaska, who I didn't know. It seems to be having protests, but, you know, looking at the rest of the circles, there's no battles, there's no violence against civilians, there's no strategic developments, there's just been protests. And I, I guess now I'm curious, because now I kind of want to see what the the Alaskan protests would look like. But moving on here, because the, the study is broken into sections, we have Black Lives Matter, Racism, and Police Violence. Uh, the study says, the long-standing crisis of police violence and structural racism in America hit a new flashpoint this year. On the 25th of May, 2020, Minneapolis police officers arrested George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, for allegedly using a counterfeit $20 bill. One officer pinned Floyd to the ground and kneeled on his neck for 8 minutes and 15 seconds, killing him. Other officers looked on, and they sourced the BBC from July 16, 2020. The study continues, Floyd's death prompted a surge of demonstrations associated with the Black Lives Matter movement that quickly spread from Minneapolis throughout the country. Between the 26th of May, the day after Floyd's death, and 22nd of August, ACLED records over, uh, records over 7,750 demonstrations linked to the BLM movement across more than 2,440 locations in all 50 states and Washington, D.C., all 50 states at least had demonstrations. And the map does show that. It's just there's a, 
um, different reactions to those protests and those movements. Um, so, let's see here. It continues. Nationwide demonstrations. While the U.S. has long been home to, the, to a vibrant protest environment, demonstrations surged to new levels in 2020. Between 24th of May and 22nd of August, ACLED re records more than 10,600 demonstrations across the country. Over 10,100 of these, or nearly 95%, involve peaceful protesters. Fewer than 570, or approximately 5%, involve demonstrators engaging in violence. Well over 80% of all demonstrations are connected to the Black Lives Matter movement or the COVID-19 pandemic. ACLED conducted a pilot data collection program for the U.S. last summer, allowing for comparison of the current moment with the same time period last year. In July of this year alone, uh, ACLED records Jeez, oh, records nearly 2,000 demonstrations, an increase of 42% from the 1,400 demonstrations recorded in July 2019. We're up 42% since last year. Maybe that's just an election year. Or things are truly, truly that dire at this time. Uh, the... Study continues, while Floyd's killing ignited the demonstrations, the protest movement has also organized around other victims of police violence and racism across the country. In August 2019, police officers confronted Elijah McClain while he was walking home from a convenience store in Aurora, Colorado. McClain died after authorities reportedly tackled him, put him in a carotid uh, hold, and had first responders inject him with ketamine. At the start of 2020, Ahmoud Arbery was shot and killed by a former police officer and his son while out jogging in South Georgia. The assailants claim they suspected him of breaking into nearby homes. In Louisville, Kentucky, police raided the wrong home while attempting to serve a warrant and exchanged gunfire with one of the occupants. His partner, Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old paramedic who was sleeping at the time, was shot and killed by the officers. Demonstrations over Floyd's killing have also called for justice in these cases and other past incidents that remain unresolved. In many local communities, protests marking Floyd's death have doubled as acts of remembrance for people like Michael Brown, Eric Gardner, Freddie Gray, and Trayvon Martin, whose killing in 2012 originally sparked the BLM movement. Even amid the current round of demonstrations, new cases have been added to the list, from Rayshard Brooks, an unarmed black man killed by police in Atlanta, Georgia, to Jacob Blake, an unarmed black man shot seven times by police in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The demonstrations remain ongoing, though reported events associated with the BLM movement have gradually declined since their peak in late May and early June, ACLED still continues to record dozens of demonstrations each week. So they have a graph here of number of demonstrations associated with Black Lives Matter, and it hit a peak around 3,250, I would say, uh, between May 31st and June, June 14th. And by June 14th, it had tapered down. So I would say around May 31st is when we hit the peak of protests, and it is slowly... Uh, gone down from 3,000 different demonstrations to just uh, dozens.
dozens at a time. An overwhelmingly peaceful movement. The vast majority of demonstration events associated with the BLM movement are nonviolent. In more than 93% of all demonstrations connected to the movement, demonstrators have not engaged in violence or destructive activity. Peaceful protests are reported in over 2,400 distinct locations around the country. Violent demonstrations, meanwhile, have been limited to fewer than 220 locations, under 10% of the areas that experienced peaceful protests. In many urban areas, like Portland, Oregon, for example, which has seen sustained unrest since Floyd's killing, violent demonstrations are largely confined to specific blocks rather than dispersed throughout the city. Another graph going into the types of uh, demonstrations happening across the United States, but also the types are usually classified by the state. Um, I don't think at any point the Portland protests have been legitimized and they are always announced as a riot and curfews set up, set out pretty early. So the article continues, yet despite data indicating that demonstrations associated with the BLM movement are overwhelmingly peaceful. One recent poll suggested that 42% of respondents believe, quote, most protesters associated with the BLM movement are trying to incite violence or destroy property, unquote. So we got 42% of respondents to a survey that believe most protesters are trying to incite violence or destroy property. I would have to uh, give that credit to the right-wing propaganda machine. That's exactly the narrative that they want, is you to equate protesters with violence and property destruction. I just wanted to add that quickly there because I've been listening to so much right-wing propaganda, I can't help but notice that that would be directly uh, a direct link to their narrative propagating. So... Moving on, this is in line with the civics tracking poll, which finds that, quote, net approval for the Black Lives Matter movement peaked back on June 3rd, the week following the killing of George Floyd when riots first began to be reported and has fallen sharply since, unquote. And I think that has to deal mostly with the characterization of BLM since then, like the continued propaganda machine of uh, Fox News and Daily Wire and all of the all of the right wing talking heads working day and night to make sure that everybody equates uh, protests with riots and riots with protests and that they are completely inseparable at this point in the right wing mind. Um, and that's going to make like protesting in the future even more difficult because as soon as something is on fire, boom, it's a it's a riot. Uh, totally delegitimizes any grievances that those protesters should be should be listened to for and the the, the right wing is just not going to listen to him i i the other day i saw a tweet from uh steven crowder let's see here and i felt like by reading it it's just like all right there's no middle ground for left and right wing in america anymore let's see here um let's see here let's see here let's see do, 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 do. It was it was a few days ago. Oh, I got blocked. Dang it. I got blocked by that one tweet that I did. All right, so it says here, uh, Crowder says, violent rioters and looters have actively 
forfeited their right to live. That was following the uh, murder of the Patriot Prayer member. And what I saw that is, is that, like, there's just no... Abs- we've cr- we've completely crossed the threshold where any right-wing... Uh, just anybody of the right-wing persuasion isn't going to take left-wing demonstrations, thought, ideas. Any of that will never be taken uh, into consideration. But again, what I said here specifically is the right-wing will not recognize left-wing protesters. If they ever recognize the left before, they will never do it again. And I, I firmly believe that. I think the right has crossed a threshold where the left is just complete, it's complete demonization. Um, and that just makes really the, the marketplace of ideas that America seems to hold so high and just makes it invalid. It just doesn't exist anymore. So um, that's great. That's, that's so healthy in a democracy and that's going to make it so livable here. Like by having people hate each other just because of their beliefs. And I believe that is something that's against the constitution. I don't want to really equate wholeheartedly ideology and religion, but there is a lot of um, synthesis there. Um, liberalism kind of even like is a humanist religion. If you really break it down, which I can't get into here because that's not what I'm here to talk about. Um, but freedom of expression, I still believe remains in the first amendment alongside the freedom of religion. So, um, to demonize left-wing thought to this extent and it going to the white house and it's in the D- the department of justice and the uh, department of homeland security this anti-left sentiment is just bringing us to the red scare and we've demonized or not demonized but we've condemned the acts of the governments of those times that committed to these red scares like the first one with uh oh shit i can't remember his name woodrow wilson was the president at the time but they had i think ed j edgar hoover was still involved um, and then there was some other, some other fool of nonsense. But that was the first red scare, and then we had the McCarthyism second red scare, and uh, both times we've come to look at that as a low point in our history. So for us to go back and do it again, um, it's it's not good. It's definitely not good or anything I'm excited for. Um, I you know I I appreciate I, I I appreciate my conservative brothers and sisters up until the point when. So they start calling us demon worshiping pedophiles. Like, what am I supposed to do with that? I, I, I just want to talk about better health care. All right, long tangent. Let's move on. Research from the University of Washington indicates that this disparity stems from political orientation and biased media framing, such as disproportionate coverage of violent demonstrations. Groups like the Anti-Defamation League have documented organized disinformation campaigns aimed at spreading a, quote, deliberate mischaracterization of groups or movements involved in the protests, such as portraying activists who support Black Lives Matter as violent extremists or claiming that Antifa is a terrorist organization coordinated or manipulated by nebulous external forces. These disinformation campaigns may be contributing to the decline in public support for the BLM movement after the initial increase following Floyd's killing, especially amongst the white population. Uh, they, they, they cited many sources here, so if you want to uh, check out their sources, that's free for you to go into, but that was actually just that long tangent that I went off on, is that there is a concerted effort to, uh, as the ADL put it, deliberately mischaracterize groups or movements or activists. 
and that just makes it uh, very hard to support gain support on the on the right. The right has completely cut off their support for any systemic change. They'll sit there and say, "Yeah, well, obviously we need police reform because they have a hard time still denying any justification for George Floyd's the way that he was murdered." Right? They have a hard time justifying that because it is so grotesque. Eight minutes and forty six seconds on the man's neck. Um. But they still, whenever they say, but of course we need police reform, they never really expand upon the idea of, like, what is it? What is the exact reform that we need to see? And the thing about BLM and the other movements is that they actually have things that they want to see reformed in the police, if not, you know, reaching to a level of abolishing the police because it seems like the police can't be changed. That's where that idea comes from. Abolishing it comes from the idea that the police will not change on their own, and the system will not make them change either. But that is for another conversation. Back to the study. Um, This waning support also comes as the Trump administration recently shifted its, quote, law and order, unquote, messaging to to target local Democratic Party politicians from urban areas, particularly on the campaign trail. So what we're seeing there, and it's not like a a direct correlation that the study is putting out. It's just like these things are happening. We're getting massive mischaracterizations from uh, one side that has that their rhetoric seems to be helping the Trump campaign's law and order slogan, campaigning, messaging, what have you, because of the 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 um, supposed disorder allows Trump to look as if he is the guy who wants to put in law and order he's he says that you see this chaos in here it's it's caused by democrats and i can be the one who cleans it up and it would actually help me a lot more if you also voted in for republicans into your uh into your local government um but it's just it's uh it's all bullshit I mean, that's essentially what political messaging is. So, let's uh, get back to the study here. But we're seeing the the study at least acknowledging that the waning support comes at the same time as the Trump administration shifting to law and order. He tweets it constantly. So, um, but his his idea of law and order is sending in a, a completely new created task force just to arrest protesters and then get information out of them that could be used to coerce it's just it's it's gross it's really gross uh tactics and methods and it's the way that a strong man reacts it's the way that a uh what what did chomsky call it a tin pot dictator would react to protests i mean there's not much of a difference between hong kong uh belarus and us right now um i would but you know okay that's too much of a tangents but Let's move on here. Despite the media focus on looting and vandalism, however, there is little evidence to suggest that demonstrators have engaged in widespread violence. In some cases where demonstrations did turn violent, there are reports of agents, provocateurs, or infiltrators instigating the violence. During a demonstration on 27th of May in Minneapolis, for example, a man with an umbrella, dubbed the Umbrella Man by the media, and later identified as a member of the Hells Angels, linked to the Aryan Cowboys, a white supremacist prison and street gang, was seen smashing store windows. It was one of the first reports of destructive activity that day, and it, quote, 
created an atmosphere of hostility and tension, unquote, that helped spark an outbreak of looting following initially peaceful protests, according to police investigators, who believe that the man, quote, wanted to sow discord and racial unrest, unquote. In another example, on the 29th of May in Detroit, a number of non-residents reportedly traveled to the city to engage in violent behavior during a demonstration leading to multiple arrests. And they're cite, they, they have cited every source here. They've cited every source here. And I just want to point out here that Umbrella Man was uh, ousted by police investigators. So the police acknowledged that this was an outside agitator. And I feel like they had the need to do so because it, the, the blame was being shifted underneath uh, police departments. So in order to vindicate themselves, they had to actually find the truth. The study continues. In many cases, violent demonstrations have sp specifically targeted statues seen to represent the country's legacy of racist violence, such as monuments celebrating colonial figures, slave owners, and Confederate leaders. All right, so I'm going to come in here real quick because I've, I, I saw some takes on Twitter. Yes, very important, all holy divine takes, um, talking about how... And I think it came from mostly leftists talking about, well, like, this study characterizes violence against... Uh, uh, property as violence, and that's why this study is kind of fucking bullshit. But it's, you know, it's not necessarily the study that's act reacting to that. The state sees property damage, uh, they see lewdism as violence. They, they say it every time. Um, every time there is, like, they, they characterized the looting of Target as a violent act. They're like, how can you call this protest? peaceful protests if they're going in and stealing stuff from that from that target and destroying the shelves and ruining the the decor um they consider that violence um it, it i don't consider that violence uh i don't think most people should because violent i i would see most violent acts to be between human to human interaction not human to property or inanimate object reaction um but the state, the city, uh, police reports, everything that this study had to collect data on considers violent demonstration to be property damage. And the destruction of the colonial figures, the slave owner, the Confederate leader uh, statues um, was an act of violence on that property. So they have, if you, if you really then consider it, that the amount of violence here that is being reported isn't even actually to be conflated to the idea that these are violent protests, that they are causing hum human harm. What this here proves is that the violence is merely property damage only. And the amount of human-to-human -human violence that we've been seeing is more recent. But there's also another study that I would have to get into here by the Huffington Post that I retweeted here because I don't think these have been accounted for specifically in this study because this study is focusing on um, violence and demonstrations related to BLM, like specifically BLM demonstrators and the like. But up here, the Huffington Post reported that new data shows right-wing vigilantes paramilitaries have confronted or attacked anti-racist protesters about 500 times since cops killed George Floyd in May. Um, so that, that information isn't going to be equated to the demonstrations themselves because they're acts against 
the demonstrations. If they were actually acts committed by the demonstrations, like the, the acts where they tore down statues that was committed by the demonstrators, right? Then that information would have been included in the study. But this information is a separate um, group or even what they usually call lone wolves acting against groups or demonstrators so that this white vigilante violence isn't going to be uh, thrown into the study itself of the demonstrators violence the demonstrators violence only uh, applies to i would say or what the study is saying so far is the violence against property property damage but then maybe we're going to get to michael reinal because michael reinal uh, was supposedly a part of the blm movement not not an, any member of anything he was he was merely an uh, a person who was he was one of the bodies because in order for these to work you need bodies you need numbers strength in numbers he was one of the numbers of the, de the of the demonstration and he murdered somebody it's the same thing with Kyle Rittenhouse Kyle Rittenhouse however would probably go into this white vigilante thing right here because he uh, joined a quote-unquote militia group Kenosha Guard and drove from Wisconsin or from Illinois into Wisconsin to do what he did that's that's vigilantism to protect property that's vigilantism he killed people that's that's associated to vigilante violence okay so i just wanted to clear that up a little bit if i hopefully i did because i just still politics is still a shit show but I get how people would be frustrated at the idea that violent demonstrations means targeting statues. But that's just the world we live in. And I would want to say that it's great that that is what's equated or that's what's labeled onto Black Lives Matter. That's the kind of violence, not not actual human violence, not any terrorism, um, no attacks, just the destruction of property, which to me isn't as important as human lives. So I, I think it's a, we need to acknowledge it. We need to acknowledge that the state and uh, really all the apparatus of institutions see property damage as violence. Just accept it. It may not be right, but we have to accept it and take in the data as such. But to me, on the brighter side, I'm glad that it has nothing to do with the violence against humans. So for the most part, I still see this as an extremely nonviolent movement. That's great. I think that's great. All right, moving on. Since Floyd's killing, and this is going to be a longer podcast for sure. Since Floyd's killing, there have been at least 38 incidents in which demonstrators had significantly damaged or torn down uh, memorials around the country, including statues of Confederate President Jefferson Davis and colonial explorer Christopher Columbus. Although these incidents account for a small subset of demonstrations, the trend has become another battlefield for the hyper-partisan culture wars over America's history of racism and a lightning rod for polarized debate over an appropriate response to the ongoing protest movement. In some communities, pressure has led to official efforts to remove monuments and to rename public facilities like schools, with town hall meetings and other fora providing peaceful opportunities for discussion and reconciliation, which can ultimately help to reduce polarization. All right. Town halls help. In others, however, clashes have broken out between those opposed to these memorials, such as the Stone Mountain Monument of Confederate leaders in Georgia and those who support keeping them. 
By the end of June, President Donald Trump seized on the topic to issue an executive order authorizing federal agents to pursue demonstrators who pull down statues or damage federal property, spurring the creation of the Protecting American Communities Task Force and the deployment of Department of Homeland Security agents to protest sites across the U.S. So, the study moves on to a new segment called A Violent Government Response. It continues... The initial government response to the demonstrations was not uniform. Many early protests were held peacefully and without incident. In certain cities like Los Angeles, California, and Camden, New Jersey, authorities even expressed support by joining marches, marches, taking a knee, or attending community meetings on reform. In some cases, these efforts reduced tensions between the community and the police, while in others, demonstrators raised concerns that these displays served more as, quote, PR stunts, unquote, than genuine acts of solidarity, potentially obscuring the scope of police abuse. At the start of June, for example, while some police officers kneeled with demonstrators in Buffalo, New York, separate reports surfaced showing the city's violently uh, city's police violently pushing an elderly protester to the ground, fracturing his skull the next day. Now, we all remember that, and uh, at some point, too, the, pre the president came out and said, ah, he fell a funny way, might be one of those BLM plants, and then we just reached a whole other level of absurdity. Um, so, yeah, we had <laughs> one day the Buffalo, New York, uh, taking a knee to show solidarity, allegedly, and then the next day, pushing an old man down, fracturing his skull, which I think he went into a coma, and I don't think he's ever come out of it. That's that's horrible. Let me see here, because it's important that we see this real quick. Nope, that's the second. And, like, in my, I, I've, I've said it before, too, on this podcast, but it's dumb for them to take the night. They took eight minutes on the, on the, on, on, in the knee position when they should have laid down because that's the position that George Floyd was in. The knee position was actually the position that the cop was in. It's pretty late to do the Colin Kaepernick position well after y'all already ostracized him and then somebody died. So um, the cops, yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Let's see here. All right, his name's Gagino. <laughs> Fractured skull. All right, he left the hospital back in June 30th. All right. Um, and then six days ago, he talked about recovery, going through recovery here. So that's all right. He's still alive. <laughs> um, let's see. He was in the hospital for a month. Um, said he's going to continue to participate in grassroots activism. That's great. Uh, he'll continue to publish writings about climate change and injustices at Guantanamo Bay. Uh, uh, uh. Uh, uh. Yep, I'm not seeing... Uh, it sounds like, for the most part, his condition is well, so it's great to hear that 
Martin Gugino isn't in a coma. I thought initially that he had been put into a coma. So this is good news. Good news, everyone. Back to the study. Overall, ACLED data indicated that government forces soon took a heavy-handed approach to the growing protest movement. In demonstrations where authorities are present, they use force more often than not. Data show that they have disproportionately used force while intervening in demonstrations associated with the BLM movement relative to other types of demonstrations. And we, you know, the zeitgeist has talked about it, how they reacted to lockdown versus BLM, but let's see. Despite the fact that demonstrations associated with the BLM movement have been overwhelmingly peaceful, more than 9% or nearly 1 in 10 have been met with government intervention, compared to 3% of all other demonstrations. This also marks a general increase in intervention, intervention rates relative to this, t this time last year. In July 2019, authorities intervened in under 2% of all demonstrations, fewer than 30 events relative to July 2020, when they intervened in 9% of all demonstrations, or over 170 events. Authorities have used force, such as firing less lethal weapons like tear gas, rubber bullets, and pepper spray, or beating demonstrators with batons, in over 54% of the demonstrations in which they have engaged. This too is a significant increase relative to one year ago. In July 2019, government Personnel used force in just three documented demonstrations compared to July 2020 when they used force against demonstrators in at least 65 events. Over 5% of all events linked to the BLM movement have been met with force by authorities compared to under 1% of all other demonstrations. In some contexts, like Seattle, Washington, and Portland, Oregon, the heavy-handed police response appears to have inflamed tensions and increased the risk of violent escalation. Militarized federal reaction. The next segment. <clears throat> All right. The escalating use of force against demonstrators comes amid a wider push to militarize the government's response to domestic unrest and a particularly uh, and particularly demonstrations perceived to be linked to left-wing groups like Antifa, which the administration views as a terrorist organization. In the immediate aftermath of Floyd's killing, President Trump posted a series of social media messages threatening to deploy the military and National Guard to disperse demonstrations, suggesting that authorities should use lethal force if demonstrators engage in looting. The president called governors, quote, weak, unquote, for allowing demonstrators in their states and instructed them to call in the National Guard to, quote, unquote, dominate and cut through protesters like butter. Senator Tom Cotton from Arkansas, an advisor to the president, recommended that the administration, quote, send in the troops and give no quarter for insurrectionists, anarchists, rioters, and looters, unquote. Yep, that's that anti-left talk I was talking about. Rhetoric soon translated to action. In early June, the government used National Guard troops, Secret Service agents, and U.S. Park Police, among other federal agents, to violently disperse peaceful protests in Lafayette Square outside the White House to create a photo opportunity at St. John's Church. The incident prompted a rare public condemnation from former Secretary of Defense James Mattis and an eventual refusal from current Defense Secretary Mark Esper to support the invocation of the Insurrection Act, which would allow the deployment of active duty troops to respond to demonstrations. Still, by the end of the month, 
Department of Homeland Security established the PACT and deployed agents around the country, including in Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, and Washington, D.C. Since Floyd's killing, ACLED records over 50... Ugh, God, I say that every time. ACLED records over 55 federal and National Guard deployments across the country, including members of PACT, as well as forces affiliated with Operations Legend and Diligent Valor. I think people should definitely record Operations Legend and Diligent Valor. Probably interesting Googling to be had there. So, Seattle, Washington became an early hotspot of the protest movement and a target of the crackdown. Washington's governor swiftly deployed the National Guard throughout the state, and by Independence Day weekend, the federal government sent agents assigned to PACT to guard monuments and to quell demonstrations. Demonstrators remained largely peaceful, but tensions rose as standoffs outside the Seattle Police Department's East Precinct intermittently turned violent, with widespread use of tear gas, flashbang grenades, and pepper spray. In early June, under pressure from elected officials raising allegations of excessive force, Police withdrew from the East Precinct, and demonstrators established a protest encampment they called the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest Zone, independent of police and government control. While CHOP was marred by criminal violence, the creation of the encampment coincided with a lull in violent demonstrations. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> Ugh. Although riots were reported before 8th of June and after the 1st of, 1st of July, when it was dismantled, only peaceful protests were recorded during the intervening period. Let's see, number of demonstrations associated with Black Lives Matter by demonstration type in Washington State. Yep, there's uh, no riots reported between the, I guess, the June, the beginning date, and the end date of CHOP. As recorded in this graph right here, Join me on YouTube or Twitch Live right now to see these graphs. Um, they have had some riots in uh, Seattle, Washington, but in that period that CHOP existed, there seems to be none. Authorities cleared CHOP and arrested dozens of demonstrators by the start of July, but the episode set an important precedent. President Trump warned that protesters would be met with, quote, serious force, unquote, if they attempted to replicate CHOP elsewhere in the country as reported by the Washington Post. All right. So in Portland, Oregon, after Seattle, the heavy-handed government response took center stage in Portland, where demonstrators have gathered daily since Floyd's killing. Throughout June, demonstrators rallied outside the Multnomah County Justice Center and other prominent government sites in downtown Portland, sporadically clashing with police who blanketed the city with tear gas and impact munitions. A federal judge soon issued a restraining order against the police, uh, Portland Police Bureau, instructing it to limit the use of tear gas over concerns that its officers were employing excessive force against demonstrators and violating their Fourth Amendment rights. By the end of the month, the order was expanded to restrict the use of other le less lethal weaponry like rubber bullets, and Oregon state legislators passed a new law that mandated police warn protesters before firing tear gas. Demonstrations continued, but tensions cooled. The situation changed in July, when PACT agents and other federal personnel took a more active role in the response as part of Operation Diligent Valor. Against the wishes of local officials, federal authorities began aggressively policing the demonstrations using excessive force and 
arbitrarily detaining suspected protesters in unmarked vehicles. Prior to the deployment of PACT at the start of July, approximately 8% of the demonstrations in Oregon were met with government intervention, and authorities infrequently used force against demonstrators. Since July, however, nearly 28% of demonstrations have been met with intervention and forced by government personnel. In Portland specifically, under 24% of demonstrations were met with state force by before July. Since July, this figure has risen to 40% of all demonstrations. Oof. All right, so then they have a graph showing the uh, growth and use of force reported. So, although federal authorities were purportedly deployed to keep the peace, the move appears to have re-escalated tensions. Prior to the deployment, over 83% of demonstrations in Oregon were nonviolent. Post-deployment, the percentage of violent demonstrations has risen from under 17% to over 42%, suggesting that the federal response has only aggravated unrest. In Portland, violent demonstrations rose from 53% to nearly 62% of all events after federal agents arrived on the scene. Cool boy. So as you can see, there is a correlation to more police brutality resulting in more unrest. Who would have known that reacting to anti-police brutality protests, would uh, the, the unrest would increase with more police brutality? Who would have guessed it? Certainly not the President of the United States and his Department of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf. The Wolf of Chads. All right. In late July, officials announced that federal agents would reduce their presence in Portland following talks between Governor Kate Brown and Vice President Mike Pence, but would remain on standby. Some reports indicate that the pullback has lowered tensions, but President Trump has warned that federal authorities will not fully leave Portland until local authorities secure their city. As of early September, the federal government began deputizing Oregon State Police to respond to demonstrations in Portland in coordination with U.S. Marshals, potentially signaling renewed federal intervention in the city. Yay! Widespread attacks on the press. Next segment. Reporters have also been targeted as part of the government response. As journalists have worked to cover the unprecedented wave of protests, they have simultaneously faced what Reporters Without Borders has called, quote, an unprecedented outbreak of violence, unquote, around the country. Government forces are the primary perpetrators of these attacks, from beatings and assaults to violent arrests. Since May, ACLED records records over 100 separate incidents of government violence against journalists in at least 31 states and Washington, D.C. during demonstrations associated with the BLM movement. The greatest number of these have occurred in California such as on the 30th of May at a peaceful protest in Santa Monica when pol police hit an ABC7 News crew with tear gas, or on the 31st of May at a demonstration in Long Beach when police injured a KPCC-LAist journalist with non-lethal rounds. And then we have a, another graph showing uh, the number of demonstrations uh, where journalists were targeted. California was pretty bad, New York was pretty bad, Oregon was pretty bad, uh, Texas, Colorado, Minnesota are pretty bad, um, and then it seems like in these green areas, not so bad, but uh, those are the main ones that are having it the worst. California, the most demonstrations where journalists were targeted.
High rates of non-state actor involvement in BLM demonstrations is the next segment. And it reads, Government forces are not the only actors intervening in demonstrations. Amid increased political polarization and deepening mistrust in state institutions, militias and other non-state actors are increasingly engaging with demonstrations, demonstrators directly. Car ramming attacks. Since Floyd's killing, dozens of car ramming attacks by individual perpetrators, in some cases acting independently with no reported affiliation, and in others linked to hate groups like the Ku Klux Klan, have been reported at demonstrations around the country. Other cases have involved those affiliated with the government, such as the military and law enforcement, including an on-duty police officer at a demonstration in Anaheim, California on the 25th of July, an off-duty police officer at a demonstration in Seattle, Washington on the 4th of July, an army sergeant at a demonstration in Austin, Texas on the 25th of July, and an off-duty jail correctional officer at a demonstration in Kokomo, Indiana on the 30th of May. Nice. Wow. And then there's a graph showing, uh, you know, uh, the, the, <laughs> who had the most, uh, car ramming incidents and what their, uh, affiliation was, whether it was the KKK, sole perpetrator or state forces, including off duty and former members. So non-state groups are becoming a more active and assertive. Since May, ACLED records over 100 events in which non-state actors engaged in demonstrations, the vast majority of which were in response to demonstrations associated with the BLM movement. These non-state actors include groups and militias from both the left and right side of political spectrums, such as Antifa, the Not Fucking Around Coalition, and the New Mexico Civil Guard, the Patriot Front, the Proud Boys, the Boogaloo Boys, and the Ku Klux Klan, among others, because there's definitely others. Woo! And then we have a, a graph showing events associated with non-state actors. And boy, are there a lot. Um, there's the Columbiana County Unorganized Militia, Gul Gulf Coast Patriot Militia, the 3% American Brotherhood of Patriots, Michigan People's Defense League, National Patriotic Defense Team, New Mexico Civil Guard, Not Fucking Around Coalition, Patriot Front, Patriot Prayer, Virginia Knights, Virginia Militia, Washington State 3%ers, Yellowstone Militia of Billings, Boogaloo, Bundy Ranch, oh Jesus, KKK, LFM, Lightfoot Militia, UCA, Utah Citizens Alarm, 3% Amer uh, American Patriots, 3% Security Forces, 3%ers, Proud Boys, White Nationalists, Antifa, Sole Perpetrator, and uh, Unidentified Communal Militia. Um, yeah, we have a lot of widespread militias activities spread throughout. I'm not going to be able to decipher this whole graph. I can't even really see who's the most active that, that graph would take some time to disseminate. And also, the bigger the circle, the more there are events. So please check the YouTube video out to see these graphs. Moving on. Overall, over 20 distinct non-state groups have actively engaged in demonstrations this summer. In July 2020 alone, ACLED records nearly 30 events in which non-state actors engaged demonstrators, up from zero in July 2019. Whether they are affiliated with an organized group or not, there is also a growing presence of armed individuals at demonstrations, with many claiming that they are standing by to keep the peace, if not to openly intimidate perceived enemies. 
At least 50 such incidents have been reported around the country since the 24th of May. Reports that police not only tolerate the presence of certain armed individuals at demonstrations, but in some cases actively encourage their involvement suggest this trend will continue, amplifying the risk of violence. On the night of 25th of August in Kenosha, Wisconsin, for example, during protests against police brutality following the shooting of Jacob Blake, police allegedly told armed members of the Kenosha Guard over a loudspeaker, quote, we appreciate you guys, we really do, unquote, and shared water with them. While many of these incidents have not turned violent, recent events in Kenosha indicate just how quickly the situation can escalate. A call to arms on Facebook by the Kenosha Guard brought multiple armed individuals to the city to protect lives and property, quote-unquote, including those not technically affiliated with the group, such as Kyle Rittenhouse. Before the end of the night, Rittenhouse shot three demonstrators, two of whom died of their injuries. Police initially allowed Rittenhouse to leave the scene, but he was later arrested and charged with homicide. Since then, President Trump has failed to condemn Rittenhouse's actions and has suggested that the shootings were in self-defense. Not, not, not something a president should be doing, but moving on, Militia Watch. To monitor the activity of militias, ACLED benefits from a partnership with Militia Watch, a research project and blog that tracks documents and analyzes contemporary U.S. militia movements and provides reports connecting long-term militia trends to broader political events. Militia Watch... Uh, gathers data from open-source and semi-open-source content created by and for militia members, allowing for analysis of militia activity from their own perspectives. Information such as recruitment drives, training exercises, the creation of new groups or splinter groups, or important announcements such as a militia support for a political group, as well as more specific details as to the identity of militias active during demonstrations, are all tracked by Militia Watch and included within ACLED debt data. All right. Next segment, a rising number of counter protests turning violent. In addition to armed individuals standing by without directly engaging demonstrations, there has also been an increase in the number of counter protests confronting opposing demonstrators. Between the 24th of May and 22nd of August, over 360 counter protests were recorded around the country, accounting for nearly 5% of all demonstrations. Of these 43, nearly 12% turned violent, with clashes between pro-police demonstrators and demonstrators associated with the BLM movement, for example. In July alone, ACLED records over 160 counter-protests, or more than 8% of all demonstrations. Of these, 18 turned violent. This is a significant increase relative to July 2019, when only 17 counter-protests were reported around the country, or approximately 1% of all demonstrations and only one of these allegedly turned violent. This trend threatens to quickly escalate confrontations between protests, protesters and counter-protesters into violent clashes. Recent events in Portland, Oregon on the night of 29th August point to how such confrontations can rapidly turn deadly. On that night, a caravan demonstration including members of Patriot Prayer, Three Percenters, and Proud Boys took place in support of President Trump. The demonstrators drove trucks through the crowd and shot paintball guns and pepper spray at counter-demonstrators rallying in support of the BLM movement. During the confrontation, a member of the right-wing Patriot Prayer armed group was shot dead by an unknown individual. Um, but we do know now it was Michael Reinel. That, that was me entering into the study. But the study continues, President Trump tweeted a message of condolences for the deceased, alleging that he had been, quote, murdered in Portland by Antifa, unquote, 
despite the fact that it remains unclear who is responsible for the shooting. Now, the study uh, has not been updated, and it came out before Rhino was was ousted, I guess, but Rhino was the killer, and apparently saying that you're a member of Antifa is enough to... Um, is just enough to say Antifa is a is a monolithic mass movement that is uh, you can attribute one person's actions to the entire group. So that's the the reality we're living in. Um, in the true reality, Antifa is a very disorganized, um, non membership based. Uh, protest tactic i don't i don't know what else to i don't know i don't know how else to explain it it's not an organization it's a it's an amorphous uh higher uh, horizontal hierarchical um uh ideology it's it's anti-fascist so anybody who claims to be antifa or anti-fascist is now a member of a terrorist organization uh, according to the president that is what we live in I don't believe it's true, and I don't think it's a healthy way to organize a democracy. But that really isn't up to me, and I don't wish it to be. I don't. I don't ever want to fucking be president. The, all right. The study continues. The rise in non-state intervention and violent counter demonstrations is set against a growing pattern of non-violent hate incidents. As racial justice protests have spread across the country, so too have displays of racist symbols like nooses. Uh, believed to be warnings or acts of intimidation targeting activists and protesters associated with the BLM movement. In late June, for example, a stuffed animal monkey was found hanging from a tree in Santa Rosa, California. In mid-July, a couple in Sa Saginaw, Michigan, found a noose and a note saying, Accessory to be worn with your BLM t-shirt. Happy protesting. Uh, slipped through the window of a car. Hmm. Comparing BLM trends globally is the next segment. Um, and I also just don't want to ignore the fact that in California, there were a couple of lynchings following George Floyd's murder. And I, I feel like those are very important to remember. We, we had actual lynchings. People were actually found hung. And I can't even describe to you the situation that the poor... Uh, black trans community is facing in these times um i feel like that's something else that hopefully is mentioned in the white vigilantes study um that alongside these these lynchings that i don't think have ever been solved but moving on to the next segment here it says comparing blm trends globally while the u.s faces a unique combination of overlapping crises Many of these trends are mirrored around the world, and the racism and police brutality exemplified by the killing of George Floyd prompted a global response. In the weeks since Floyd's killing, at least 8,700 demonstrations in solidarity with the BLM movement were reported across 74 countries, including the U.S. demonstrators focused, uh, including the U.S., sorry, demonstrators focused their outrage on American symbols, including embassies, consulates, and trump properties but they also rallied around local cases of police brutality and racial inequality the blm movement has offered a brand of anti-racism and anti-police violence activism for a range of contexts around the world in many countries demonstrators have been applying their own martyrs 
to the solidarity protests and are using BLM as an inspiration for structuring domestic movements against police violence, discrimination, and political repression because it is a global issue. Fascinating. Um, and then they have a uh, graph here showing the global demonstrations associated with Black Lives Matter. Um, a lot of it really seems to be focused in uh, Europe, but we do have cases in Tokyo. Uh, it's, there's some in India, I guess. Interesting. Uh, South Africa, pieces of Africa, Northern, Northern Europe. Fascinating. So we're moving on to the next segment here. COVID-19, a global health crisis. Unrest over police brutality and racist violence erupted at the height of another crisis, the COVID-19 pandemic. America has emerged as the new epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak, with only 4% of the world's population. The U.S. was estimated to have a quarter of confirmed cases by the end of June. At the time of writing, more than 180,000 Americans have died, and over 6 million have been infected. In America, the health crisis and the latest wave of demonstrations associated with the BLM movement are intertwined. The current BLM protest movement has become one of the largest in U.S. history, in part because it emerged within a socioeconomic environment deeply disrupted by the pandemic. Research indicates that people who lost their jobs and livelihoods are more likely to participate in the protests, especially as a pandemic has left clear winners and losers in its wake. The, quote, strike for black lives, unquote, for example, is an effort to unite, quote, the interconnected fights for racial and economic justice, unquote. As part of this movement, essential workers have been protesting in remembrance of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain, and other black people killed by police, while also calling for the Senate to pass the Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Ooh, Emergency Solutions. I don't know omnibus. I, I, I am an illiterate person, but the acronym here is HEROES Act, Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions. I don't even think I'm saying that word right, but fuck it. Just because I'm stupid don't mean I can't learn. All right. A stimulus package to address the pandemic's economic impact, which has hit some har harder than others. The number of black Americans working in frontline jobs impacted by the pandemic is disproportionately high. Black workers continue to earn less than their white counterparts, and almost half of black households are concerned with their ability to make rent on a monthly basis. According to the Brookings Institution, COVID-19 has become the third largest cause of death amongst the black population. The next section here is impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. The economic fallout from the pandemic is devastating. According to the University of New Hampshire, all 50 states have experienced extreme job loss and 43 have recorded losses quote, worse than, the great, than in the Great Recession, unquote. The Congressional Budget Office estimates that the pandemic will shrink the economy by approximately $8 trillion over the next decade. Holy fuck. Woo, that statistic just hit me. It has not hit me before, and it just hit me really fucking hard. Damn. Over the next 10 years. 
I mean, the government's already making like a shit amount of revenue right now, so this is not good. We are going to see the United States in a very hard decline. The thing is, though, is you got to wonder how much the automation revolution that's going to take place and the algorithm revolution that's going to take place also over the next decade, if that's going to really be enough for the economy to uplift the whole section or, I mean, the whole country. But here's the thing about the economy once it automates and runs through algorithms is that we're going to have a lot less jobs. Uh, open for people so then ubi is going to become important right or some some form of universal basic income because there's going to become what uh, yuval noah harari has uh coined as the useless class so once we reach that point on top of eight trillion dollars economy shrinking i oh my god Woo -wee. all right god damn it so fucked in so many different ways um, more than half of all businesses that closed due to lockdown measures have reportedly closed for good. And the country is now facing a mass eviction crisis, which is projected to disproportionately affect minority communities. All the sources have been cited here in this study, and that's why I love studies. All right. As the situation deteriorated over the summer, demonstrators uh, took to the streets over these issues and more protesting unemployment, evictions, and unsafe working conditions, as well as school reopenings and mask mandates. The pandemic has not escaped politicization, with regular confrontations between demonstrators for and against lockdown restrictions and support for social distancing measures often polarized along party lines. Since the 24th of May, over 1,000 pandemic-related demonstrations have been reported in 47 states and Washington, D.C., particularly in California, New York, Florida, and Texas. Wow. Over 1,000. In early August, demonstrations connected to the pandemic surpassed demonstrations associated with the BLM movement for the first time in months. And they actually don't report on these very much either. Because I maybe, and here's the thing here, is that the COVID-19 pandemic isn't necessarily a protest against lockdown so much it is about jobs and the state's reaction. I feel like that has a lot more to do with it, but you know, we'll see here. Uh, demonstrations around school reopening, mass evictions, and health care workers are explored below. Oh, wow. Not quite as many... Uh, protests as BLM, I will admit this, but there are a lot of protests here, and it breaks it down into eviction moratorium protests, which there seems to be a good amount, not quite as many as other COVID-related demonstrations. But reopening of schools has seen a lot of demonstrations. Uh, can't tell if it's pro, pro or against. Um, so let's continue here. Check out the graphs. Check out the study yourself. Again, it's at uh, acleddata.com. It was released the 3rd of September. You can even download the PDF. Read it on the go. Uh, school reopenings face challenges, challengers from both sides is the next segment. And it says, with the school year beginning, demonstrations led by teachers, students, and parents both for and against reopenings are on the rise. In July, the Trump administration called for schools to reopen for in-person teaching, despite renewed concern over the coronavirus outbreak. Demonstrations organized by teachers and students have surged in response, although some including many parents, support the president's call to reopen. The vast majority of demonstrations oppose in-person teaching, with participants arguing that it remains unsafe to return to the classroom. 
Several schools that already reopened were almost immediately forced to quarantine hundreds of students. Compounding these worries, as reported by the Wall Street Journal, Oh yeah, more than 330 demonstration events over school reopenings have been reported across 42 states in recent weeks, and they show few signs of stopping. So far, reports indicate that all have been peaceful and have faced no government intervention, though some have been met with counter-protesters. Interesting. Uh, the article here continues, uh, the study continues. Uh, mass evictions pose widespread risks which could lead to more demonstrations, more desperate demonstrations as well. That that was me at the end there, not the not the article, but almost forgot about my workers fuel. Um the study says the country is simultaneously facing a looming eviction crisis. Due to the pandemic's economic impact, millions of Americans have fallen behind on rent payments. The COVID-19 eviction defense project suggests that, quote, 19 to 23 million or one in five people living in renter households are at risk of eviction by October. According to Princeton University's eviction lab, evictions are likely to disproportionately affect the black community. While the government has held the crisis at bay through stimulus measures and both federal and state eviction moratoriums, the federal moratorium and a $600 a week supplement to unemployment benefits lapsed at the end of July. Further relief negotiations have stalled in Congress over spending disagreements, prompting the president to sign executive orders extending the lapsed supplemental federal unemployment benefits, but reducing it to the $400 a week contribution. President Trump also made the plan contingent on states coming up with 25% of the payment, raising concerns that some states, already stretched thin financially during the pandemic, may opt out of the program. Trump's executive action also does not reinstate the previous federal moratorium on evictions, but instead only directs federal agencies to, quote, consider, unquote, measures to prevent evictions. Jesus Christ. Surely the president of the forgotten people, right? The National Low Income Housing Coalition has called Trump's order, quote, an empty shell of promise to renters, unquote. As the end of the notice period following the lapsed federal moratorium approached, demonstrations linked to the eviction crisis have broken out around the country, especially in the Northeast, which has registered over one-third of these demonstrations. Since the 24th of May, at least 37 demonstrations have been reported across 15 states. At the start of September, the CDC issued a new nationwide moratorium on evictions through December. The policy has been welcomed as an essential step by housing advocates like the National Low Income Housing Coalition, though they remain concerned that it is, quote, a half-measure that extends a financial cliff for renters to fall off when the moratorium expires and rent is owed, unquote. While the move may stave off the eviction crisis and surge in associated demonstrations for now, the threat is set to reemerge by the end of the year. We have the next section called Health Workers on the Front Lines. So we've the study here has kind of broken off from just the... Um, Black Lives Matter movement and has kind of entered into the realm of intersectionality here in focusing in on how the demonstrations 
also show that we are a nation in freefall, essentially. Um, we face a ton of issues that we may have the wrong president for. So, health workers on the front lines. From the pandemic's front lines, healthcare workers have led demonstrations calling for better working conditions, greater COVID-19 protections, and a stronger government response to the crisis nationwide. In August, for example, members of National Nurses United held protests at healthcare facilities across the country as part of the National Day of Action to Save Lives. The nurses called on the Senate to pass the HEROES Act, a pending bill that the House of Representatives passed in May to provide $1 trillion in additional aid to states. They also demanded that hospitals adhere to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC guidelines, provide adequate personal protective equipment, and take steps to prevent overwork. A recent survey conducted by NNU suggests that only 24% of nurses think they are provided with a safe workplace, while 87% indicate that they have had to reuse a single-use PPE at least once. Another 27% of nurses reported short staffing. It's unfortunate. ACLED records... Oh, God, I do it every time. Records! <sighs> Nearly 70 demonstrations involving healthcare workers in response to the COVID-19 pandemic in 19 states in Washington, D.C. since the 24th of May, with the highest concentration by far in California, the state with the highest number of confirmed COVID-19 cases. So, we have the next segment here, um, comparing COVID-19 trends globally. I just, I do want to acknowledge here that... Yeah. We have not really shown enough solidarity and support for our nurses. I, I want to take personal responsibility on that. It's just I feel like, especially with the way the media reports the news, is that BLM is the most uh, urgent of issues. But um, to be perfectly honest, all of these are equally urgent. And I don't think as a country we can survive all of these crises, especially with all of them attacking us at once. <laughs> so... Comparing COVID-19 trends globally. As in the U.S., the pandemic has also shifted political violence and demonstration patterns worldwide. Trends that ACLED has monitored through its COVID-19 disorder tracker. Movement restrictions and social distancing rules led to a precipitous decline in demonstration activity at large, even as the crisis triggered new demonstrations over government pandemic responses. Mob violence, fueled by fear of the virus, and opposition to lockdown measures has also increased, as has democratic backsliding and state repression. Conflict dynamics have changed along the evolving strategic priorities of violent actors, while calls by the UN Secretary General for a global ceasefire have largely fallen on deaf ears. Fascinating. Uh, global demonstrations and political violence related to the COVID-19 pandemic map is uh pretty jargon like holy whoo that is a lot of demonstrations there's a lot of demonstrations and it's just it's throughout uh almost all of the world canada seems to be avoiding almost most like for some reason canada doesn't have any but my guess would be then that canada is not reporting them or they just didn't look into canada because even australia's got a dot uh they got a dot for demonstrations even uh russia has some i see some in china 
you know, these are communist nations and don't let a lot of media out. So I find it pretty fascinating that Canada has a, has a, just a blank spot. So that's fascinating. Um, it continues on to the next segment here. Other concurrent crises in America. In addition to nationwide unrest over police brutality, racial inequality, and the COVID-19 pandemic, a multitude of other risk factors shape demonstration and political violence trends in the U.S. Violence targeting women, for example, remains a major flashpoint. In July, a self-proclaimed anti-feminist attorney attacked the home of U.S. District Judge Esther Salas, killing her son and shooting her husband. Such violence can also fuel demonstrations, as in the case of Army Specialist Vanessa Guillen, who was murdered in April after being sexually harassed at a Texas military base by another soldier. The killing has triggered protests across nearly half of all U.S. states over sexual violence in the military. Here's the crazy thing about Fort Hood is they found another body buried. Uh, Fort Hood has a problem that really needs to be investigated. But moving on, hate crimes also remain a widespread threat, with attacks targeting a range of minority groups outside the context of the BLM protest movement. Around the 23rd of June, for example, a group vandalized an Indian restaurant in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and spray-painted racist slurs over the walls and furniture of the establishment. On the 4th of July, a black man was reportedly harassed and attacked by five white men at a public park south of Bloomington, Indiana. I just want to interject here that it's crazy because the uh, black man that was attacked, I believed, um, was a human rights activist. Like, how terrifying to be a human rights activist and have your rights stripped by stripped from you by five random white people and a group of their drunken buddies. They were all just hammered and thirsty for blood. It was insane. That video is insane. That 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 event is insane. This country is losing its fucking mind. All right, that was all me, not the story, not the study. Back to the study. According to the victim, he was assaulted while the assailants repeatedly threatened to get a noose. Quote unquote. On the 17th of August, three individuals attacked and robbed a group of transgender women on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, California, threatening to kill them because of their gender identities. A crowd of bystanders filmed the event, shouting anti-transgender slurs while police drove by without intervening. They never showed up to the scene. I never heard of this specific incident. But we have already been seeing, and I wish this uh, study just included it in here, is that the amount of hate crimes has drastically shot up since President Trump gained office. I think that needs to be recognized. The next segment here says, looking forward, while these data present only a snapshot of demonstration activity and political violence in America, the trend lines are clear. Demonstrations have erupted in mass around the country, and they are increasingly met with violence by state actors, non-state actors, and counter demonstrators alike. With two months until the election, the U.S. faces deep divisions over racial inequality, the role of the police, and economic hardship exacerbated by an ineffective pandemic response. The administration has taken multiple steps to inflame these tensions, from announcing further federal deployments in Democrat-led cities like Chicago and Albuquerque, to threatening a postponement of the election altogether. 
In this hyper-polarized environment, state forces are taking a more heavy-handed approach to dissent. Non-state actors are becoming more active and assertive, and counter-demonstrators are looking to resolve their political disputes in the street. Without significant mitigation efforts, these risks will continue to intensify in the lead-up to the vote threatening to boil over in, in November if election results are delayed, inconclusive, or rejected as fraudulent. To keep track of these risks in real time, check the Crisis Monitor, uh, U.S. Crisis Monitor, updated weekly. The data and crisis mapping tool are freely available for public use. The project seeks continued funding to ensure the data collection continues through the 2020 election and beyond. If you're in support, if you are interested in supporting this work please contact admin at ACLE uh, okay just restart it the professionalism demands restart please contact admin at acleddata.com if you are interested in supporting the work um, that was the ending of it there and then we have the uh, authors of the studies uh, I'm gonna butcher her name I am so sorry Rudaba Kishi. Uh, she is the Director of Research and Innovation at the ACLED. And then we have Sam Jones, who is the Senior Communications Manager at ACLED. Um, they have much more accolades to their name, but um, just wanted to give a shout out to the authors there. But yeah, I think the summary there pretty much succinctly wrapped it up there with looking forward is that we looking forward to November if we do not try to find a way to bridge the polarization it is just going to be incredibly worse by the election day itself but I hope this was helpful and I hope people will go out of their way to read this study uh, because it has a wealth of information about how almost every situation that we're facing um, everything that we call a crisis everything that we call a political political issue is really coming to a head in the United States, and that means that it's worth paying attention to and being well informed on these issues. Um, I don't think the right is the right wing is paying attention to these issues at all. Like I think this study is just going to go completely beyond any of their reporting. They're not going to report this, and which means that the whole um, underhanding of the democracy slipping the rug underneath the right wing while they're not paying attention, um, I think that's going to benefit mostly the capitalists and the ruling elites. Um, everybody that is a right-wing working class is not going to benefit from that. Maybe they will in their cultural beliefs, but in their socioeconomic positions, it's the, the power is going to continue flowing upwards. And we're seeing that in these crises because everybody is suffering. It's usually in the lower income, lower rung of society. That's who's suffering in all of these cases, whether we're dealing with the violence at the protests or we're dealing at the state violence of evictions. And the thing that I think is important for the left to take this information in is because if you have this information, knowledge is power, and then you can use this information to say, hey, Democrat la uh, Democratic Democrat-led cities are not your problem, or not not even that, just not your only problem, because we can we can admit that neoliberalist policies led us just as far here as did uh, Trump's policies. So uh, this study is incredibly important, incredibly important. Demonstrations and political violence in America. So I, I new data for summer 2020. So I encourage everybody to go check it out. I, I think this 
podcast and the streaming and this video recording was a little bit shorter than I had anticipated, and then I am very glad. Um, but please read this fucking study because it refutes um, the the reason why I clicked on it is because it specifically refutes the right wing narrative of equating riots to protests and never having the two separate that every protest is a riot um but no protest or every protest is a riot but no riot is a protest that's that's what the right wing narrative has latched onto here and i think this data here specifically all of it um, even going down to the counter-protests and the outside agitators, refutes the actual narrative that the right has been building since the death of George Floyd. Um, and then, you know, thankfully enough, because this seems to be the main issue that is tearing apart the United States of whether or not we're going to live in a police state or we're going to reform the police, maybe even abolish and replace the police. Um, we don't know. We don't know what the future holds for that specifically, but I do like that the study then got into the intersectionality of all the crises and issues that the United States is suffering um, coming to a head by November. So if you know if you're into that sort of thing and like being well informed and this doesn't depress you hard enough, I say get brushed up on these statistics, get familiar with this data because it's going to be very important to convincing. Um, reasonable moderates to your side um i would say the sycophantic right wing is probably too far gone to try and convince out of the donald trump black hole but it's worth a shot you can try and save as many people as you can um but if they aren't willing to look at data and they aren't willing to take in studies they aren't willing to look at multiple sources then there's really no point in trying to um reason with somebody like that i feel like you know, you don't have to get into a violent argument or a violent confrontation with that person. You can honestly just let them go if they are willing to let you go. You know, you don't. nobody has to tread on anybody, you know. But I think it's important that people try to understand these facts and get it into the narrative and the zeitgeist to try and refute the antagonistic right-wing narrative that is going to lead to more Kyle Rittenhouses and more calls to action like the McCloskeys and all of that that's just going to lead more to more violence where it is uh, American citizens of the working class killing each other merely for the the, the the ruling elites and the media's ratings all of their enjoyment like we're really heading to a point where the purge is going to be broadcasted on YouTube and you get a code if you're rich enough to watch it while the rest of us have to participate in it that's what these violent acts come out to me as and they had a ridiculous one with battleships dumb kirk edition and they have it every they're gonna have it more often in portland as the proud boys and patriot prayer setting up their own uh demonstrations that are of course going to be met by anti-fascist demonstrations as well so um, we're going to see an increase in tensions. I'm not excited about it. I don't like it, but that's why we have to get familiar with this data in order to combat with information rather than weapons. But, you know, that's just a take here that we have at Talks News. I want to thank you all uh, for joining me. There's, I'm going to try and record another video here today because there's some more narrative to get to. But like I said, this data coming out from the armed conflict location and event data project. This study is very important and I think everybody should get brushed up on it.
even follow them, stay stay up to date on the uh, on the website. And then I think it said go to U.S. Crisis Monitor to get uh, even more um, up to date updates to stay updated with the United States in crisis. They provided that at the very bottom here. And let me see. Let me make sure I get that correct. I want to get that correct. Yep, the U.S. Crisis Monitor updated weekly. So if you want to stay up to date on the actual issues, you can go to a completely partisan, uh, uh, nonpartisan U.S. Crisis Monitor. Um, but they're going to say that all this information leads liberal because it doesn't fit the right-wing narrative. But that's the thing is that the right-wing narrative is built on biases before information. Um, this is information, and it just seems to fit the left narrative of we need to make things better so but that's just data you can you can take it in as as you want and then flip it however you want to that's that's the unfortunate side is that facts don't always remain true once they get into the wrong hands but yet again thank you for joining me um i hope you have a beautiful wonderful day i'm sorry if this was depressing or uh, wasn't quite enlightening enough, but um, please keep spreading the love as much as you can because that's really all we can do. Um, continue showing up at demonstrations. Do not take bullshit from the man. Um, this has been your lovely host over at Talks News. I'll be back with more uh, debunk the right I, or fight the right is what I call it, but um, I'll be back with more of that. I've been scouting out some videos, seeing what, what needs to be analyzed, but for now, um, please get into this fucking study. Oh my God. I cannot say it enough. This get in this fucking study. Look at this study demonstrations, political violence in America. Like, look at it. Just look at it. All right. Look at it. Read it. Listen over to this. Listen over this again. If you find this resourceful, just re-listen to this and take the studies in, write them down. I don't know, but this, this information is going to be important to stop us from killing each other because <laughs> that's what ultimately needs to stop is United States civilians killing each other over an orange Cheeto and his toxic ideology. But again, I thank you. I love you. And I hope you stay beautiful. Uh, yep. <laughs>